Hello, and welcome to the Her and Him podcast. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And when two theologians get married, what, what you, you get, get is a podcast. Fully vaccinated edition. We are. Yes. You and I had two very different vaccine experiences in that I had just a sore arm for a day and you basically died for a day and then came back to life. Yeah, it was awful. And as I was Googling the side effects, I was like, oh, yep, that one, that one, that one. So I experienced all of the side effects that you read online. I know. I came into the bedroom and I just saw you laying on your back holding a tulip. Does that mean I'm dead? Yeah, basically. Oh. (laughs) But... We're back to life. We're back to life. Back to life. Back to reality. Uh, That's the only part of the song I know. I think that's the only thing the song says for like three minutes. Yeah. But it has a really good beat. Like a good dancing beat. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, vaccine is not the topic of today's podcast episode. So please, if you are not a fan of the vaccination, stay with us. We're not talking about that today. And also just get vaccinated. I mean, it's, it's fine. (laughs) <laughs> but you can just keep hitting the 30-second forward until you, you hear us stop talking about it. But anyways, today on the podcast, I wanted to talk about one of the most misunderstood people in history. And who is that? Jesus. What? You know, we've had, I think, 45 episodes to this point. This is our 46th episode of yep. the podcast. And we haven't had an episode on Jesus. Shame, shame. I know your name. Yeah, but we thought this would be a good topic. (laughs) Jesus is always a good topic. (laughs) Jesus is always the right answer. And up until now, we have been failing at the right answer. I know. Maybe our critics are right and we're just like leftist, woke, liberal Christians. Maybe. We don't even have an episode on Jesus. But we do now, or at least we will after we finished recording this one. But really, the reason why we want to talk about Jesus, well, there's a lot of reasons we want to talk about Jesus, and we can't fit <laughs> Jesus into one episode of the podcast. Uh, but really, we want to talk about like who and I guess what Jesus mm-hmm. is. Yeah. Because when it comes down to it, like understanding who Jesus is, it's not exactly easy. Because when the infinite creator of the universe takes on human form and he dies for you, that's kind of like, a, that's a mind freak. Right, like it's, it's tough to wrap your mind around that one. Yeah, and you grew up in Sunday school hearing about it, and once you become a believer, it's all you ever hear about, and it becomes just this common understanding. But I wonder if we really understand it. I mean, I don't. Right, and, and think, that's fair. And I think because it's so like common to—I mean, it's Jesus, obviously—and we know Jesus is fully God, fully human, the whole thing. Uh, we tend not to ask any more questions of that because. <laughs> Like, that's the answer. And so how do you dive much deeper than that and really Mm. understand it? But there's a lot of theologians that have done just that. And so what we want to do is kind of dig deeper into that and I guess kind of grapple with exactly what that means and what it looks like um, and kind of why that would affect your understanding not only of Jesus, but also an understanding of who you are as a follower of Jesus. Yeah, and so today we'd like to dive into a topic of theology, which is known as Christology. And that's a thing in theology, like just whatever topic within theology, you just put you just, ology you just put ology on the end of Maybe it. Maybe you use the Greek word, or the Greek root of whatever that word is, and then you just put ology on the end. Yeah. So whenever we want to sound smart, we just make up words and tell you they're real. 
<laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's all academics yes, ever know. do. They just make up words. Words are all just made up. Dale tells me that all the time. All words are made up. So, uh, the beginning of it will be a little bit heavy, but please stay with us. Uh, we hope to really boil this down into something that is practical in your faith and in your life at the end. So if in the beginning you're just struggling to <laughs> stay alert because <laughs> we're talking about things that maybe you're not particularly concerned about, um, we just ask that you stay with us to the end. Because it's going to get real practical. We swear. It's, I, I feel like we promise that every podcast episode, sometimes we deliver, sometimes we don't. Will we deliver this time? Won't yes. We? Oh, we have to wait and find out. Maybe just keep Sorry. hitting that 30 second button forward. And then <laughs> it's a mystery. We'll see if we actually, I mean, we don't know, but you can probably tell if you just fast forward into our future. And then you can come back and tell us. What if, is happening? I don't know. Okay. Can we, let's get to the first part of our podcast. <laughs> okay. So when it comes <laughs> to understanding who Jesus is, like on an existential level, it, as we said, is fairly complex. And even as you begin to understand and categorize everything that the Bible has to say about him, his nature and his essence is a word that we'll probably use a lot. Uh, what you're left with is a lot of tension between the different aspects of who Jesus is. And tension, it isn't the same thing as contradiction. Mm. But when you're talking about God incarnate, there, there has to be a certain level of tolerance for mystery. Because that's just the way that it's going to be. We're not going to completely be able to get a handle on all of this. But thankfully, in the midst of that, we have a lot of wisdom from generations past, both in theological writers, but actually uh, these ecumenical councils of the church mm -hmm. where every leader of the church came together and kind of hashed these things out and tried to clarify them. And this happened within the first 500 years of the church. So by like 500 AD, a lot of these things had been kind of solidified and codified and we had language for them that basically the whole church would continue to use up until today. And so there's a number of those councils that we want to dive into. And the first one is the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325 AD. Yeah. And something um, before I talk about the Council of Nicaea that I didn't know about any of these councils growing up as a Christian. I didn't learn about them until I was in college. And I think there are some other denominations or church traditions that really emphasize these councils within their teaching and their churches are really well aware of these councils. But I think it's helpful, regardless of what denomination you come from, to know about these different councils that we're going to list because they have all been incredible in shaping what we believe, not because it's not biblical, but as they were trying to clarify who Jesus is in comparisons to what the rest of the culture was saying and what other religious leaders were saying, it was important for them to come together and say, no, this is what we know to be true because of scripture. And so let's have an official council. Let's make it known. And let's not vary off from this. And I think as believers today, we don't know how rich this is in our in our belief systems today. But these councils have impacted us in really great ways. And I encourage you to read up on them just a little bit because I never knew about them before going to seminary, really. Yeah, and really, we, these councils and these events and these decisions and this clarification of language, it belongs to you regardless of what 
denomination you're in because all of this was hashed out before there were any denominations, about a thousand years before there were any denominations. There was really just one church. Mm -hmm. And so the first one of those was the Council of Nicaea. And this was kind of like the first big one where all of the church leaders came together and they were responding to a kind of strange view by this guy Arius and he had a lot of followers and they were called Arians, which is different from the Hitler Arians, but also bad. And so a lot of these councils were in response to some kind of issue or problem or kind of strange view that somebody came up with. And so that's what caused everyone to come together and to clarify these things. And at Nicaea, Arius, he was basically saying that uh, Jesus and God the Father were kind of separate in, in some ways. They weren't the same essence. And so at the Council of Nicaea, they basically were like, no, that's not right. God the Father and God the Son are in the Greek homoousion. And Arius is like, they're homoousion. And like that one iota, that one little I made all the difference in the world because what the, the view that the church came to understand is that God the Father and God the Son are the same essence rather than homoousion, a similar essence. And so that was the Council of Nicaea. So as we understand Jesus, he is an eternal part of the Godhead who is of the same essence as the Father and also as the Spirit. Yeah, and about 100 years later, the Council of Ephesus came together to bring some more clarity on how we understand Jesus. And what they brought was this affirmation that Jesus has two distinct natures. So he is human and he is divine, but he is still one person. And this union for those two natures in one person is something that is called the hypostatic union. And that was important for them to clarify that he is fully God and fully man all in one. And this was against Nestorianism, which essentially had argued that Jesus had two distinct personalities, like he had two different wills or volitions. And that goes against what we understand. He is fully God and fully man in one one body, in one person, in one essence. And that he, he doesn't just have, they're not two competing things that he is existing in. Right. He has one essential will and volition, right. even as he has two natures. Then the Council of uh, Chalcedon in 451, this is where they affirm that while Jesus has two natures that were united into one person in the hypostatic union, those two natures still remain distinct in some way. So it, it, he didn't like become this third thing, like when you are fully God and fully human, it wasn't like this humanity deity cocktail that was turned into this third amorphous thing. <laughs> mm. So we had the two natures, but they were distinct, even though they were united. And so from those councils, we kind of get this more fully orbed explanation of who Jesus is based on the scripture and kind of arguing back and forth about these distinctions that Jesus is one of the eternal Godhead, that there's these three persons in the Godhead that are one essence, one essential nature, but they're three distinct persons, and Jesus is one of those. And then at the incarnation, Jesus became fully human, and he was fully God, but he was one person with one will, and while he had those two natures that were united, those two natures are still distinct. And so just to, to think about it a little bit more concretely, think about when Jesus is born, and 
uh, he's in, an infant being laid in a manger. He is fully human. He is just as helpless as any other infant you know, would be. The, uh, having just been born, he had to de- grow and develop and learn to uh, operate and to walk and talk and uh, understand things any way that you know, any other human would have to do. And yet, paradoxically, at the same time, because he's God, he's actively holding the universe together. As if that's not so like, confusing. <laughs> so like that's the, that's the tension yeah. that you have to – that's the mystery of it there. But that's basically an orthodox understanding of the person and the nature and the essence of who Jesus is. And that's a lot to wrap your head around. Mm-hmm. And because of that complexity and mystery – there's a fair bit of confusion that arises from how we could understand that because then because we're using like all of these theological terms and you know historical councils and cities that we don't even know where they are and you know all these kinds of things so there's kind of a popularized version of who Jesus is that kind of comes to the fore that's a little bit more understandable to us but just because it's a little bit more understandable that doesn't necessarily mean that it's Correct. And I'm not saying that any of us, you know, necessarily have a heretical view of who Jesus mm-hmm. is, but maybe there is a way we can refine our understanding of who Jesus is uh, in order to just tap into a, a little bit more of that because it'll shape who we see ourselves to be. You're right. It is important for us to tap into that and maybe refine it a bit. And so one area that we want to dive into today on this podcast that we just really found compelling and it's something that we've talked about for a few years now and just really wrestled with ourselves and it's this idea called spirit Christology and it takes a slightly different approach than perhaps this common understanding of Jesus's incarnation that most of us were raised on and our common depiction of Jesus's humanity is more of a souped up version of humanity. It's more of this, as Dale likes to say, God in a bod. And God in the bod. (laughs) And we have this depiction of him that it's like Jesus' divinity is just very thinly veiled. And we view Jesus as more of a superhero and more of, you know, maybe one of the Avengers or the other hero characters that my husband loves so much (laughs) that I know nothing about. But every time we'd seen Jesus perform a miracle, we would treat that as if we were getting a peek behind the curtain, as if we were getting a sliver of his divinity because we get to see a miracle happen in Jesus's life. Yeah. And so kind of converse to that is this idea of spirit Christology. And uh, this view uh, can also be called the kenotic theory of Christology. And there's a book that we'll link to in the show notes called The Person of Christ by Donald McLeod. And he calls it the the kenotic theory of Christology. And it comes from this Greek word, kenosis, which literally means to empty out. And it's found in Philippians 2, 7, where it says that Jesus emptied himself out and took on the form of a servant, you know, being made in human likeness. And so there are two different camps within this understanding of spirit Christology or kenotic Christology uh, that really emphasized that Jesus, when he became fully human, he emptied himself out of his divine authority, 
his divine power. And there's two you know, competing camps within that. And the first one is ontological kenosis. And basically what that says is that Jesus literally gave up all of his divine attributes and abilities and authority. And he didn't have access to his divine nature basically until after his resurrection. So that's ontological kenosis. Then there's functional kenosis, which says that Jesus just chose not to access any of uh, his divine nature until his resurrection, or at least that he seldom did. But in, mm-hmm. in both of these, whether it's ontological, Jesus actually lost his divine attributes or gave them up and didn't have access to them, or B, he, didn't, he just didn't use them. The, the main idea is that when we understand the incarnation of Jesus, what we're seeing is him completely emptying himself of his divine attributes and operating completely as a mortal man, as a human Yeah, and so that idea would suggest that he didn't pull out his God card when he was performing miracles and when he was feeding the thousands and when he was uh, giving sight to the blind man and when he was healing the paralytic. He didn't just pull out his God card to do that is what this uh, spiritual Christology is suggesting. And I think that there is certainly quite a bit of biblical backing that makes me lean towards this aspect of Jesus operating in his earthly ministry apart from his, not apart from his divinity, but he wasn't using his divinity to perform miracles. Yeah. And then I think the natural question is like, how could that be? Because every time I see Jesus heal somebody or I see him raise somebody from the dead or he multiplies food, like that's those are miracles. That's God's stuff. Like, how could he not be operating out of his divine authority if he's just being fully human? And how does that work, I guess? Right. And that's a great question. I think Thank it's, you. I'm a really good question asker. You, you are. You should just interview me. It'd be perfect. Um, when we look at the Old Testament, there are a lot of miracles that happen there. And we see every single miracle that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry also carried out by the Old Testament prophets. So there's nothing that Jesus did that didn't happen in the Old Testament. And what we read in the Old Testament is that the Spirit of God had fallen upon them. And then we begin to see this miracle. So we see people being raised from the dead. We see miraculous feedings. Um, We see people being healed. And am I missing any of the big miracles? Uh, food multiplication? <laughs> yeah. I think if you just read through uh, the stories of Elijah and his uh, yeah, he had successor, a most of Elisha, uh, Elijah and Elisha, I think we can account for all the kinds of miracles that we saw Jesus do. And not only Jesus do, but his disciples after him continue to do because Paul raised somebody from the dead. Uh, they healed people. Uh, I can't think of a, a post-Jesus scenario where food was multiplied. Yeah, I looked uh, and I couldn't. Might, that might not have been. But the same kinds mm-hmm. of miracles are casting out demons. They're doing all the same things that Jesus did. And Jesus even told them at one point, like, you'll do greater things even than you see me doing mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. now. And they did that because they had a further stretch of geography. You know, Jesus only stayed within the bounds of Israel for his entire three-year ministry. And then the apostles go out and they're spread basically throughout the known world at that time, uh, performing the very same kinds of miracles as they preached the gospel, uh, as they, you know, the same kind of miracles that Jesus had done. Yeah. And so for the Old Testament prophets, they certainly weren't 
operating in their own sense of divinity to be able to carry out these miracles. They were operating as the spirit was being poured upon them. And then we see that later on in the New Testament, obviously, when the spirit had descended and we know that as Pentecost. After that, that's when the disciples begin to perform miracles and they are operating out of the power of the Holy Spirit and not operating out of their own divinity. So we can see Jesus through this understanding of spirit Christology, where he is actually operating out of the power of the Holy Spirit and leaning on the Holy Spirit to be able to perform these miracles. Yeah, I think the only time that runs counter to the thought that Jesus is operating purely out of his humanity and his reliance on the Holy Spirit who had come upon him after his baptism would probably be the transfiguration. And I think mm-hmm. that's important. And I think the transfiguration, it's a, it's accounted in all four Gospels, right? It is. Yeah, in all four. And this was kind of a seminal moment because this is really the only time prior to Jesus's resurrection that we see his divinity kind of in full force. Like this is where we do see the curtain pulled back Mm -hmm. and you kind of see that alongside Jesus's human nature is this divine nature that is within this one person. And so he's not playing the God card, but he's kind of saying like showing like I have the God card. And that's why that moment was so important Mm. because that was kind of the, the only time that he did show them that I'm not like the prophets of old. I'm something completely different. I'm someone Mm. completely different. Uh, I'm the real thing. I am God incarnate. And so that's why that story is accounted for in all four of the gospels. And it's so important because of how unique and strange and even terrifying it was. <laughs> right. Yeah. I couldn't imagine seeing Jesus like in his fully divine form. Right. Yeah. Like your buddy Jesus, like they, I mean, they had who looked like you at one point. Yeah. Right. Like they would eat together. They travel together. They fish together. They they were friends together. And so to see that your friend Jesus, who was also your leader and you, who you look to is terrifyingly divine. Mm. Uh, that's why that moment was so important because it was dissimilar to a lot of the other moments that they had had with Jesus and where he was very, I wouldn't say he was ever ordinary, but he was very human. Right. Because he had, emptied himself out and he was operating from a place of humanity and reliance upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. So at this point, like you said, he was intentionally showing them, no, I am God and I'm not like all of the other men who have come before me who've operated through the Holy Spirit. Like I've been operating through him, but now I want to show you that I am fully God. Right. So that's kind of the only glimpse we get prior to his resurrection. Uh, But why does this matter. So we've been going on and on about Jesus is one person with one will, but two natures and he's fully divine and he's eternal, but he emptied himself in the spirit Christology. Why does this all kind of matter in practical terms? The most significant part about understanding spirit Christology is knowing that if Jesus was emptying himself and he was operating fully on his reliance on the Holy Spirit, then everything that Jesus did in his earthly ministry, everything, all the miracles he performed, his ability to fight off temptation, um, all of those things, we have 
the exact same access to. We have the same resources available to us as he did. So when we read these incredible things that Jesus did, oftentimes we like to write it off and say, well, of course he's God. I'm not God. Duh. But understanding that he didn't operate off of his divinity, he operated out of his humanity and reliance on the Holy Spirit, we are then put into that same situation where we too can do these same things. We have the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit available to us in the same way that Jesus did. And this is really important for the way that we live our daily lives because it doesn't mean that we are unable to fight off temptation or resist temptation. Obviously, in and of ourselves, we cannot, but through the reliance of the Holy Spirit, we can. So it really does change the way that we view the power that lives within us, the way that we view the power that we receive upon salvation. And when we look to Jesus and he says, you know, that he experienced the same sufferings and the same temptations and he's connecting with us, he's even connecting with us to the full degree of being able to resist those temptations and to endure those sufferings because he relied on the Holy Spirit. And we can do that as well. Yeah, it certainly seems to bring Jesus a lot closer to us, which was the point of the incarnation in the first place that the eternal God came down and dwelled with us and among us, that if Jesus wasn't just thinly veiled divinity, if he wasn't just God in the bod souped up, you know, superhero Jesus, if he was a mere mortal in every sense of it, and he was living a life that was reliant on the Holy Spirit, and that's how he did everything that he did when, when he preached, when he fought off temptation, when he healed people, when he performed all these miracles, if he was doing that, not as superhero Jesus, but as mortal man Jesus, relying on the Holy Spirit, then really that gives us a whole lot less excuse to not look like Jesus and to Mm -hmm. not do the things that Jesus did. Because like you said, we can look at Jesus and say, well, he's God in the bod. So how am I ever going to do any of the things that Jesus did? Like why even try? Like I'm just a sinner saved by grace and there's no way that I can attain to that. But everything changed when the Holy Spirit came down in Acts chapter 2. Now, this is after Jesus had ascended into heaven, and his disciples were there together, and the Holy Spirit came upon them, and that is the experience now of every single believer, that Mm. you have the same Holy Spirit empowering your spiritual life that Jesus had empowering his spiritual life and his ministry. And this isn't to say, it would be arrogant to say that you can get to a place where like, oh, now because I'm like Jesus and I'm reliant on the Holy Spirit, now I don't sin anymore and I've become, you know, morally perfect or whatever. Like more, none of us is going to bat a thousand, obviously. And so that's not what we're trying to say. But it is to say that in any given situation, in any given moment, you have the exact same resources available to you that Jesus had to him to fight temptation, to discern the will of God, to act with courage, to really, Jesus said, like, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will see mountains move. And he was serious when he when he said that, that 
he wasn't literally talking about mountains necessarily, but he was talking about miraculous things that could be done in you and through you. And yet we don't really tend to believe that at all because we have this God in the bod view of who Jesus mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And I think you so perfectly put together the reason why us understanding spiritual Christology is important. Outside of it just being this really heavy academic topic that it feels like it's way too far over our heads and what is its practical implications. If you understand that Jesus operated out of the Holy Spirit and that you have that same power available to you, then that completely changes the way that you view your faith, the way that you view the Holy Spirit working in your life. And it really should change your daily activities because you have the power of the Holy Spirit. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. And we are without excuse of why we shouldn't believe that the Holy Spirit lives in us and can do mighty things through us. Really turn the tables on the audience on this one. We're going to talk about Jesus and now we're ending up like, you have no excuse to keep sinning. Dang it. I did that last episode. I am so sorry. (laughs) No, but it's true. I mean, and so like, it is like this, like, oh, bummer, like responsibility thing, because if I have the same resources available to me as Jesus said to him, then I have no excuse not to step into greater faithfulness that seems like it might be impossible at this juncture in time. But at the same time, it's also a very hopeful message right. that you have you can that you if have you it. want to yeah <laughs> the it, power lives in you you can you can step in like jesus is inviting you to step into that that's why he sent the holy spirit to us and so we're not stuck in whatever cycle uh that he found us in and that that we were saved out of and i think this goes even into how we understand salvation itself like when we begin to understand jesus differently we begin to understand our salvation differently uh, because again like jesus salvation we tend to think of these the these things and jesus is not a thing he's a person uh we tend to think Thank of you for them clarifying as uh, in very reductionistic terms which you know as a thumbnail and you're like trying to tell somebody who jesus is and what the gospel is um you don't necessarily in every conversation need to unpack you know three hours worth of academic theological content on them. So the thumbnails are good, but if the thumbnail is all we ever know, then our understanding becomes a little bit reductionistic. And so even when it comes to salvation, we tend to think of salvation as kind of like that hand stamp thing before we die, Uh, the get out of hell free card. You know, Jesus died for my sins so that I won't have to go to hell when I die. And so we think like, okay, I was sinful, And so Jesus needed to die for me. And then Jesus died for me and I put my faith in him and he took the guilt away so that I can go to heaven when I die. And then we kind of get into this weird place because it's just a hand stamp. I was like, well, in the meantime, I should probably start to be a little bit of a better person. So I'll read my Bible and go to church. And, you know, Jesus will kind of help me become a better person, but I'll never really have any actual hope of getting that much better. Because after all, I'm just a sinner. I'll always be a sinner. And I'm just a sinner who's saved by grace. Yeah, but that might not be the best way to understand exactly. our salvation. That might fall short of the fullness of, of really what Jesus wants for us. And in, in many ways, that understanding of salvation is robbing us 
of the full glory and the full redemption that we can receive in Christ. And of course, when I say full, I I mean just more robust on this side of eternity because we won't get the fullness of it until after we die. But there is more that we can live in on this side of eternity. And Marcus Peter Johnson, uh, he had written a book. And do you know, what's the name of his book? His book is called uh, One with Christ, an oh, evangelical yes. theory of salvation. And we'll link to that in the show notes as well. Yeah. It's a good one. This one was pretty revolutionary in my understanding. Right. So he argues, again, that this is the wrong way to understand what it means to be saved. So certainly penal substitution and justification are part of the gospel, but they don't constitute the entire gospel. And to put your faith in the idea of penal substitution isn't the essence of what it means to be a Christian. And so instead, we need to understand that to be a Christian means to be in Christ. And so the salvation that Jesus offers and his salvific work cannot be understood as existing externally from the person of Jesus himself. Like You have to actually be connected to him. It's not just this action that was done for you uh, that's external from who he is. There is a deeper connection between you and Jesus that changes at the moment of salvation. So you then become connected to him rather than a transaction, a transactional view of salvation. Right, yeah, like Jesus paid it. Yeah, he says, hey, here's what I did. Here's your token. Have a great day. I'll see you later. That's not, that misses Jesus. Right. Because that operates transactionally. Yeah, and we understand it a lot as the work of Jesus being separate from the person of Jesus. And Mm, so we can accept mm -hmm. the work of Jesus, and then there's only this vague connection to the person of Jesus. But when you look at the New Testament, and Johnson argues this, you know, fairly compellingly, that what it means to be saved from the New Testament perspective isn't that you um, are justified, though being justified is part of being saved. It's kind of one of the byproducts Mm -hmm. of being saved. But what it means to be saved is that you are now included into the person of Jesus Christ. And that sounds like strange language, but it's actually all throughout the New Testament where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And uh, Paul talks a lot about being in Christ, being in him, in the Lord, like this is the identifying marker of what it means to be a Christian, not sinner saved by grace, but someone who is in Christ, who is whose life is hid with Christ in God is mm-hmm. another way. Mm-hmm. I think it's in Colossians that, that Paul it says uses that. that language. Yeah. And so this is kind of like a more fully orbed understanding of what it means to actually be saved. And so the idea is that when you come to faith, it isn't just that your ledger is wiped clear and now you should be a better person and God will help you with that. It's that at the moment of salvation, you you existentially are a different kind of person. There's an existential shift in who you are. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes into your life. And so the eternal Holy Spirit, who has existed from eternity past, who is uh, part of the Godhead, unites himself to your frail mortal soul in a covenant that can't be broken. And so that changes the composition of who you are. And so that's why you have eternal life because your life is hid with Christ and God, that you Mm -hmm. are connected to the giver of life. You're connected to life itself in the person of Jesus through the Holy Spirit. 
Right. And so apart from him, there is no life. It It's not just saying there is no life after death. It's saying, no, you're, if you are not in Christ, you do not experience life. And for a lot of us, that's hard to grapple because we think, well, there are certainly non-believers out there who are experiencing life just fine. But when you begin to understand what it is that Jesus gives you when you are in him, you realize, no, those non-believers are, are truly not experiencing the life that Jesus has for them. And, and the, the reason they were created and the reason that they were put on this earth. And so there is a fuller understanding of what does it mean to live and what does it mean to have life when you understand that life only exists in connection to Christ. And I think that's one of the reasons why the the misunderstanding or I guess it's not a misunderstanding because when you are in Jesus, you you get to go to heaven. Like that is true. But to only view salvation, again, as this hand stamp, you then also begin to view heaven as just your greatest dreams coming true. And I had once heard it, are you as excited for heaven if Jesus weren't there? And a lot of people probably would be like, well, do I still get the mansion I'm dreaming of? Like, do I still get all of these things? Like, are the streets still paved with gold? And I mean, that's a whole nother issue. But there are these misunderstandings that flow from this sort of hand stamp salvation. And those misunderstandings can really lead to a domino effect of several other misunderstandings of what it is to have salvation. And so heaven is Jesus. Like it is connection with him. It's all about him. And that's going to be the greatest thing that you get to experience, that you get to see. And so to look forward to heaven for all these other materialistic things is, again, a misunderstanding that flows out of this hand stamp salvation understanding. Yeah. And I think this is something that we do a lot because we we try to simplify things so that we can explain them to somebody in like a coherent manner and in a short way. Right. Something that's good about that. But when the, when our simple explanations become simplistic understandings Mm -hmm. and we never delve past that, then what we end up with is sort of a hollowed out view of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be saved, of who Jesus is, of who we are because of who Jesus is and what he has done. And so I think wading through a little bit of the messiness and the mystery and the tension is helpful because I think ultimately it leads us to not only a more satisfying place when we like, okay, so like this, this fits better. Like there's not this kind of like, you know, I guess loose connections between these biblical ideas, but it's all uh, coherent in the idea of being in Jesus. Mm -hmm. It's comforting and it's also empowering, Mm -hmm. I think, because Mm -hmm. you you no longer are working with kind of this hollow understanding. You have a more fully orbed understanding of what Jesus is calling you into. And um, one way that I like to put it is that, you know, just to, as we're having this conversation is that Jesus became fully human so that we could. Hmm. Like he yeah. completely gave up, uh, whether it was ontological or functional, he pro- completely emptied out his divinity and became fully human so that when he rose from the dead, that we could become fully human because mm. we exist apart from God as n- something less than fully human. 
less than what he had created us as humanity. When God created Adam and Eve, there was the fullness of humanity there. But then when we fell, something broke. Something wasn't right anymore. And we became something less than fully human. And so really that's the center of this conversation that it's only through the, the perfect man, Jesus, that we can become fully human. And he did that because he became fully human so that we could. And so this podcast might have flipped your world upside down a tad, and in some ways we hope so, <laughs> because these... That means the green tea I drank before was working. <laughs> well, these understandings of Jesus and these views and, and really theological views have really changed the way that we understand our faith. And so we hope it's done the same with you, and not just simply for the sake of knowledge, but actually so that you would read the gospel account and even the way that you understand what it means to be human. Like we hope those things are transformed and we've hoped that this podcast has been helpful in those ways because in the end you have a very real power and that power doesn't originate with you. It's not out of your own like deity that you get to possess power. Its source is the Holy Spirit. But as you are in Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that power is nevertheless available to you in full force. Thanks for listening to the Her and Him podcast. If you enjoyed hanging out with us, consider subscribing to the podcast to receive it automatically each week. Also be sure to head over to our website, hernhim.com, and you can get show notes for this episode, read our blogs, and other helpful resources. We'd also love to hear from you, so you can email us at herandhimblog at gmail.com. Thanks again, and we will see you next time. Have you ever considered yourself a messenger? I mean, you are called by God, and aren't we all praying the big prayer, Here I am, Lord, send me. So if we put two and two together, you've got a message to deliver, my friend. Whether it's mics like this, bookshelves around the world, stages to take, art to make, or businesses to build, it's time we start testifying truth unashamedly, creatively, and in love. My name is Tamara Andress, the host of the Messenger Movement Podcast, which is designed to catalyze Christians to speak, write, build, and testify. I use my mic like a machete, so if you don't like to get your toes stepped on or pushed off cliffs to finally jump on in with Jesus, I may be too much for you. But if you're ready to turn your message into a movement and want to run with other messengers doing the thing at scale globally, search and follow the Messenger Movement Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or lifeaudio.com today.